This is Ifeani, Editor-in-Chief and Editorial Director of Amaka. In this podcast, we're going to delve into the worlds of some of the incredible women within our communities and across professions and countries. This is Then and Now. In today's episode, we sit down with Dr. Arikana Chiambori Kwao, the Zimbabwe-born former African Union ambassador to the United States, political activist, medical doctor, and CEO of Bell Family Medical Centers, remains an esteemed figure globally. Emigrating to the United States during the 1970s, Her Excellency has found success both as a medical professional and a diplomat. While tirelessly and passionately lecturing about how Africa's past has affected its present and future, Her Excellency advocates for the advancement of Pan-Africanism to reunite African nations and Africans in the diaspora for the betterment of the continent. This is Her Excellency Dr. Arikana Chiambori Kwao. Just to start off, I know that it's been a loaded 2020 and a very interesting start to 2021. So I just want to ask you, how are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear it. Um, and let's just start at the beginning. Obviously, we all know so much about your background, but I just want to know, since you were born in Zimbabwe prior to the country's independence, I want to know what do you remember from this time period to sort of give us an understanding of cultural context and background? I think most of my memories uh, growing up in Zimbabwe as a young adult is that of the war. Uh, The uh, War of Liberation started in the early 60s. And by the time I was in high school, things were beginning to really pick up. I do recall the boys uh, organizing the different boarding schools. And uh, we, the girls, I think I was in like Form 1 at that time, we were not allowed to join them. Uh, I remember wondering why they were not allowing us to join them, but they were mobilizing, they were marching into the city, into Harare, from various uh, boarding schools um, around the area. And it was quite a big movement. And around that time too, a lot of those young men, they also left the country and went into the bush and joined the guerrilla warfare. So those are my distinct memories of uh, my young uh, adult age as I was becoming a teenager that's what was happening in the country. And it only got worse up until I left the country. Those are very critical cultural moments um, historically. But personally, how do you feel that context and any other part of your life at that time, how do you feel that sort of formulated your politics? How do you think that your politics came to be? I think it's because of that experience, not only um, the movement that was uh, um, rapidly uh, increasing, but also my own personal experiences during that time, Uh, being a victim of torture uh, by the Rhodesia Front, um, just injustices around you. Uh, The fact that there were only certain parts of the city that we could get into, it was very clear as to who you are. I still remember as a little girl, uh, I was part of a Girl Scout organization, and we were invited to the home of uh, some very nice um, British woman who lived in, uh, in Harare. 
but what I remember distinctly about that visit, they drove us from the boarding school into Harare. The boarding school was about, oh, maybe 50 miles outside the city. Um, and we sat outside, we, the girls from the boarding school, they made us sit outside under a tree. And I remember when we had lunch, they brought some sandwiches. We sat outside and yet the little white girls, they ate inside uh, where it was, it was cooler. And I kept wondering why we were outside, uh, why the other girls who were white were going inside. For some reason, that memory just stuck with me because I wished I could go inside too. But I also knew very clearly that I'm not allowed uh, because of the color of my skin. So it's experiences like that, that, that were all around you, uh, that really kind of formulates, and you're constantly asking the injustices, uh, but, but also raised by a father who was alive when our land was taken uh, from us by the, by the British settlers. Uh, the cruelty of it all, how the family had to move three different times uh, because some British guy would have been given their land. And so my father was very clear and I grew up actually believing that the British were thieves, which really if you look at history, they, they were. Um, but my father would always remind us that one of these days, we are going to defeat these thieves. So those were the conversations in my home uh, about the thieves that took our land and that someday we will defeat them. Uh, I'm really glad that my father did live to see an independent Zimbabwe. Um, of course, during that time, Ian Smith was the president and every day that you listened on the radio, he was the prime minister rather, on the radio, uh, on television, for those who were fortunate enough to have a television, uh, we would see the television in the boarding school, of course. Every day he would address the nation and he would always start with, Zimbabwe will never have black rule, not in a million years. Those words have echoed into my head because he did it every time he addressed the nation, not in a million years. Well, it was good to see Ian Smith defeated and uh, we didn't have to wait a million years like he had been saying. So those are some of the things that formulated my sense of justice, my sense of uh, equality um, and discrimination. And uh, so it was all around me. There was no running away from it. That is really the life that I lived as a young person in Zimbabwe. Those are my memories of the Zimbabwe that I know. Uh, a country that was uh, full of discrimination, a country that was full of um, hatred, uh, a country that um, uh, was just so unjust. And simply because we were black people. And that's what formulated the way I feel today. It's really deep to the core at a very deep subconscious level, this sense of justice uh, and to be discriminated against simply because of the color of the skin, to be raped in broad daylight and still be totally powerless to do something about it. That is very painful and it continues to this day. That's what drives me, that what keeps me going. And that's why I'll never tire until we have justice as black people. Thank you so much for sharing that. Just hearing these memories that you speak about and understanding the cultural and historical context of them all and how they aren't very singular and specific to one person, 
and how they're not that far removed if we're talking about a timeline. What do you say to people who, quote unquote, want to keep the past in the past or want us to forget that period of turmoil as far as colonialism is concerned? What do you say to those people? Well, if you don't know your past, how do you prepare for the future? If you don't know your past, how do you strategize to deal with those who have sought out to marginalize you? How do you strategize to reclaim that which belongs to you? It's imperative that we understand that we are part of somebody else's agenda. The agenda that says the Western world cannot survive without stealing resources out of Africa. Plain and simple. So how can you not want to understand the past? Your past is actually your present. Berlin Conference is alive today. There isn't Togo, there isn't Djibouti, there isn't Benin. Cannot successfully go to the world market and trade with the big boys is because there's tiny little economies. Togo, Benin, they're the equivalent of one little bitty state in the United States, and yet they're called a country. It was all by design. How do you honestly expect Central Africa Republic to negotiate with China? Really? How do you expect Equatorial Guinea to negotiate with the United States? It's ludicrous. Berlin Conference is alive and well. The reason these countries were chopped up into these tiny little countries is so there could be economies that could never thrive on their own. So then how do you say Berlin is a piece of history? Berlin Conference is not a piece of history. Yes, it is a piece of history, but it is a piece of history that you must understand that the real question you should be asking is over 130 years later, we black people have nothing to dismantle it. That is the question black people should be asking. Shame on us. And every black person should be infuriated rather than fall into this trap of this narrative that says, oh, it's a thing of the past. No, it is not. Our history is very much still alive. As long as Africa is going to continue to be the provider of natural resources to the worst, our past, our history is very much alive. The reason we have such large un youth unemployment it's because we're too busy creating jobs for the West. And now China has joined. Everything that requires Colton, cell phones, laptops, electric cars, that microchip should be manufactured in Africa. That alone could eliminate youth unemployment in Africa because 65% of the Colton in the world comes from the Congo. Our cocoa beans, 65% of cocoa comes from West Africa. If we could just say every cocoa requiring product must be manufactured in West Africa. We will eliminate unemployment, youth unemployment in Africa. Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire have started manufacturing some cocoa in a very limited way. The questions we should be asking as black people, why is that? Let's take it to the World Trade Organization. Why are they giving a blind eye to these horrible world trade policies? Let's take it to the IMF, World Bank, why do they continue to give African countries these exorbitant interest rates that make it difficult for the African countries to get out of the doldrum? The average African country is spending over a third of their GDP on loan repayment, IMF and World Bank and other financial institutions. 
That's more than what they're spending on education and healthcare combined. And those loans, some of them go back to colonization. You got to remember when the Britain Woods institutions were put together, it was based on the fact that their success is based on the failures of developing nations, the majority of them, of course, being in Africa. So they need our financial resources. They need us to fail. They intentionally rebranded us as needy people, as defective people who need fixing. So they justify sending NGOs to Africa to rescue the Africans. So for those who say, forget the past, no, you're so wrong. To prepare for what you young people need to do, you must understand your history. I used to have a mirror by my door as my kids were going out. I said, take a good look at yourself. When you finish getting dressed and your mother gives you a thumbs up, and then you take a last final look at that mirror as you walk out the door, you are it. You are walking the world that you own. Walk, stand up tall. Every step that you take on this earth, on, take it like you own the world because you do. But because you have been told you are inferior, you are leaving the house feeling inferior. And everything you do throughout the day is inferior. Understand how you got that mindset. Generational brainwashing. Your father felt that way. Your grandmother felt that way. Great-grandmother, great-grandfather felt that way. It was all by design. When the settlers, those invaders from afar, came to our beloved continent and found some amazing, powerful kingdoms and they set out to destroy us. And their strategy number one was to destroy the mind. They were not white. They didn't call themselves white where they came from in Europe. We went black in Africa before they came. But they took that color and coupled it with Christianity and made everything wonderful, angelic, Christ-like, and everything horrible, devilish to be shunned away from. And they said, you Africans are black like the devil. For how long are we going to believe that blatant lie? Have you ever seen a person who looks like a white tablecloth? Have you ever seen a person who looks like a white piece of paper? Have you ever seen a person who looks like the cover of your black cell phone? A black tablecloth? Why haven't we questioned that? And yet, if you were to step outside the door right now and ask the first 10 people you see, what color are the angels? I can assure you, 100% are going to say white without thinking. What color is the devil? 100% of them will tell you black without thinking. This is precisely why that experiment that was done a couple of decades ago where little black girls and little um, white girls were given black and white dolls to choose. Of course, naturally, the little white girls chose the white dolls. What was shocking was that 100% of the little black girls, they chose white dolls. And when I asked why they chose the white dolls, they said, because the black dolls are ugly. These were little girls under five years of age. 
whoever sat down and told their kids, tell little girls that you're black and you're ugly. No, but somehow at that tender age, through subliminal messages around them, these little girls already knew. Why do you automatically feel inferior? Why do people automatically feel superior? They too are victims of the same society that raises them. Their parents may never tell them that they are superior to black people, but they just know it. So if you do not understand the genesis of why black people think like we do, you will never be able to undo it. You are being told, oh, we are all equal. Oh, hell no. Pardon my language, we are not equal. Don't fool yourself. So for you young people who find yourself being fooled and being told, forget your past, it's history, it's gone. Are you okay with the fact that you are an automatic criminal? Where they meet you in an alley, in a store, they watch you because they just know you're gonna steal something. Wherever they see you, you're just gonna do something bad. Are you okay with that world? Wake up children, being an angel or a devil is based on deeds. The police officer who knelt on George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds is the personification of a devil. It is just that simple. So we're counting on you, young people, to unite and speak up and say enough is enough. Young people, regardless of the color of your skin, black, white, yellow, green, orange, whatever color you are, you deserve to live in a world that is equitable. A world that you can get up today and say, I am moving to Japan. And my daughter, you can go to Japan and never have to worry about what the Japanese are going to do to you because of the color of your skin. By the same token, the Japanese little girl should be able to get up in the morning and say, when I grow up, I wanna live in Abuja, Nigeria, and never have to worry about what the Nigerians are going to do to him or her because he's Japanese. A little white girl from Iowa should be free to wake up and say, I am going to live in Kikuyuland in Kenya. The same token, the Kikuyu girl should wake up and say, I'm moving to Alabama, United States of America, and never have to worry about what's gonna befall him or her because of the color of his or her skin. That is the world we're talking about. That is the world that you young people should demand and we're here to support you. This world is yours and I'm gonna be the one to apologize to all you young people because we your elders. And the, and the elders and the ancestors behind us, we failed to fix this for you. But we are making a commitment. That is this generation, we are going to fix it. The change that we desire is not gonna happen overnight. That means every day you must have a serious conversation with the image in the mirror to undo the deep-rooted damage. So know your history and begin the journey to self-healing and self-discovery. On that note, if you don't mind, I have written a book precisely to address those issues. To, in a nutshell, to let you young people know what has been done to us, what continues to be done to us, and what we can do to undo the damage.
The book is called Africa 101, The Wake Up Call. I urge all of you to get a copy. Africa101.org. Africa101.org. Mm-hmm. Get yourself a copy and begin the journey. Thank you so much for mentioning your book. I wanted to talk about that because it's very clear that the past is indicative of where we are now and dictates the future as well. And you speak so often about history from the Berlin Conference to everything else. Um, And someone with, I have a degree in Africana studies, so this is something that I study as well. But for the average person on the continent and in the diaspora who is not familiar with this history that you always speak about and remind people of that you mention in your book, besides books and having these conversations, how do you feel that people need to educate themselves about history? And do you think that this type of history will become more common knowledge? Because it doesn't feel like it's common knowledge now. Well, it's because we are busy running away from it, following their narrative that says, oh, forget the past. And we agree with them, forget the past. Yeah, but they're still enjoying the past because of the systems they put in place. So yeah, it's our fault that we have chosen. Look at the miseducation of the Africans. Look at why is it that many African educational systems are still are still using colonial textbooks? Who is to blame? We are to blame. Are you with me? Why aren't we teaching our own history? I mean, sometimes I just sit back. I was talking to a friend of mine. Uh, we were talking about the African artifacts that are still in European museums. And I thought, Zimbabwe had gotten its um, remains last year. I thought the British had authorized the Zimbabweans to go pick up uh, their ancestors. They still haven't. How are they justifying holding on to the remains of our ancestors? I'm, I'm just reminded of this to say that the most obvious things that we can change, somehow we're just incapable of changing them. Our history, for example, every student in the university, in high school must know that there's tremendous trillion dollars worth of African artifacts are sitting in in European museums, labeled. The history is there. Why haven't we gone to get them? Do you think if those artifacts were British, they would last one day in an African country? Can you see the remains of a British soldier in Kenya? Come on. Wouldn't last one hour. Not only would they come and take that, those remains, but they'll kill thousands in the process. But because it's Africa, they get away with it. You need to understand your history. You must be infuriated at what is being done to Africa. Infuriated. So yes, the intentional mis- miseducation of the African, it continues to this day. What's nice about exploiting Africans? Say it to the millions of the babies dying every day of hunger and starvation because you took jobs out of Africa. Tell it to the women who are dying while giving birth to another lie because of the activities you are involved in in Africa. Give me a goddamn break. Pardon my French, my American French. We're tired of this. We are tired of this. And this gotta stop. And the way to stop it is for us to unite and speak with one voice. And Your Excellency, just tying back to that 
need for Africa to be united. You've spoken uh, endlessly about different countries having to unify in order to become a world power. So with that in mind, what does Pan-Africanism mean to you? Because it's currently a word that sort of, it's never left the public psyche, but it seems to be resurfacing as far as the diaspora is concerned. So what is your definition of Pan-Africanism? Pan-Africanism is just the realization that uh, uh, Africa is the center of the world. It once was, and it needs to regain her place. Africa, Pan-Africanism is the spirit, the sensation, the idea that we must embrace everything African. We must stand up tall on the tallest pedestal. I say to the world that uh, as black people, we are the mothers and fathers of humanity. And more importantly, as black women, I'm saying it, I guess I'm a black woman, I can say that I'm entitled. If I don't toot my own horn, I don't know who is going to. But the world must wake up every morning, get on their knees, and thank the black woman. Because without the black woman, we would not have humanity as we know it. The first human being was carried, natured in the womb of a black woman. We belong on the tallest pedestal. That's what Pan-Africanism is. Thank you for that explanation. I guess I would say, what do you feel that your personal purpose in life has been? I would like to say my personal purpose for me was chosen for me. I did not set out to be speaking uh, to the extent that I am. Um, I did not set out to, to be given the platform that I was given. It came as a total shock. I did not think I was the right person for the job uh, because of my experience as a medical doctor. But for whatever reason, I ended up being, the plat being given a platform to represent not only the Africans on the continent, but black people around the world when it came to black people in the Americas. That was a heavy lift. And so initially I did not think I would stay because I didn't think I had anything to offer. But once I began to see what was really going on, when I was in the inside and beginning to see the reality of what I kind of knew was happening, but I didn't understand the depth of it, I got really angry. I decided that I was gonna stay a little bit longer. And when I decided I was going to stay a little bit longer, I had to come up with, if I am going to stay a little bit longer, what am I going to do? I'm just not gonna stay a little bit longer just to be an ambassador. No, I was going to stay behind, roll up my sleeves and deal with the issues that I felt needed to be dealt with. I felt very strongly that the diaspora are the only missing ingredient for Africa's development. I understood very clearly that Africa does not have the capacity Africa needs to build the Africa we want. That we can put any amount of money we want in Africa if we don't have our own Africans owning and building the Africa we want, we will always be enslaved. That is why when those try to complain about the Chinese are coming to Africa and taking over, they're taking over because the capacity Africa needs to build a sustainable Africa, most of it is in the diaspora. As we speak today, there's not a single African country that has the capacity to build a railway line. There's not a single African country that has the capacity to build an airport. The capacity is there, but it is broken up. It's in the diaspora. So I felt very strongly that a sustainable Africa has got to be built 
by the diaspora in collaboration with the brothers and sisters on the continent. But the diaspora, as I began to understand them, they were misinformed. They understood, they misunderstood what was really going on in Africa. I felt the diaspora were being thrown a shiny object and they were running after the shiny object, which was really a mere distraction. The real issues went the opposite direction. So to begin with, I felt education, informing the diaspora about what was really going on. A perfect example of something that really got me was every time I would finish talking, the first question out of the diaspora, but ah, ambassador, the, the African heads of states are corrupt. African leaders are corrupt as if it was the beginning, the middle and the end of any conversation to do with Africa. And yes, leadership may be an issue, but I know many African leaders who are doing very well for their people within what they could do. Understanding that they're working within this international world, this global world that has put so many restraints and roadblocks on the African countries and their abilities to grow. You see, they taught us how to read, but not to reason. And we continue to suffer from that to this day. So I felt I needed to educate the diaspora, put it right in their face. I had one come to me, but ambassador, these are African leaders, they are giving all these contracts to the Chinese. The Chinese are taking over Africa. I said, my son, I know of a Chinese company that just got a contract to put power in one particular country. I said, if you tell me that we have diaspora who have the money, who are organized, and are willing to take one of those contracts. Believe me, I'll call the president and ask him to give it to them. I said, do you know of any, organ any diaspora who can take that contract? Oh, well, ambassador, you know how diaspora are. We're not organized. You can never find diaspora who can do that. I said, okay, then let's take it another a step further. I need you to go to that grandmother in that part of the country, the grandmother who is getting ready to receive electricity because of the work that the Chinese would have done. Go tell that grandmother, that I don't want you to have electricity because I don't want the Chinese to do it. Also tell that grandmother that while I don't want the Chinese to do it, I'm not gonna do it either. So stay in your darkness, grandma, but goodbye. I'm going back to America. I'm going back to Europe where I have running water, where I have electricity. Are you even making sense? The reason the Chinese are there is because you are not there. You are not organized enough. So as we speak, are you even making any sense? So before you start complaining that the Chinese are taking over Africa, they are taking over Africa because you are not there. I was talking to the managing director for Zambian Development uh, Agency. He said, Ambassador, every day in my office, Chinese are lining up, coming to ask for the opportunities in Zambia. Not a person from Zambia, not a person from Africa. Oh, God forgive, forbid, no one from the diaspora. He says, I wish I could have Africans, black people, lining up outside my office asking for the opportunities. They are not there. But the diaspora, the same ones who are calling and complaining from 10,000 miles away, they want electricity, they want development in the country. Who is going to bring that development? Somehow you want to see an Africa that's already built and developed by who? When you are not ready to pull your pennies together and do what it takes. A million people with $85 a month for a year, that's a billion dollars. 
we can do it. With a billion dollars to start with, the game is over. These contracts are self-funded, our, our contractor funded. But we want to go home, get the contracts, and then look to the very same people who have oppressed us and ask them to fund us. Does that even make sense? Stupid as hell. Stupid as hell. So I sought out to take the diaspora on the journey of truly understanding what is going on in Africa and what we can do about it. We got two thieves, got the old thieves who are the colonizers who continue to steal from us to this day. They are the same ones who are using us and pointing at China and say, watch out for the Chinese. They're coming to take over Africa. What about what you have been doing? That's the infrastructure you built, you, West, you, you colonizers. So what platform are you standing on telling us to watch out for the Chinese? You're afraid of the competition. But the way we should look at it as black people, we got two thieves in our African village. Got an old thief and a new thief. Both gotta go. They must come back and understand that while we appreciate foreign direct investment, we must be on the driver's seat of Africa's development. They can no longer be on the driver's seat of Africa's development. That is our responsibility and ours alone. But for that to happen, we must unite. We must organize. We must speak with one, with one voice. For us to be able to unite and organize and speak with one voice, we must wake up. We must understand that we are fast asleep. You don't go to China and find black people driving the Chinese development agenda. You don't go to Europe and find black people driving the European development agenda. They drive their own development agendas. We cannot allow them to then come to Africa and continue to drive the African development agenda. There's a seat, a vacant seat that has our name. We must reclaim that seat. The building of the Africa we want is hours and hours alone. And for that to happen, we must fully understand what we are up against. So my mission in life is to educate us as black people and understand that Africa belongs to us. What Africa has is our inheritance, is the inheritance of our children and generations to come, that we must defend it by any means necessary. For us to successfully do so, we need to understand our history. We need to work up. That is my mission. Thank you to our guest, Her Excellency Dr. Arikana Chiambori Kwao, for joining us. This is Ibiye Ani, Editor-in-Chief and Editorial Director of Amanka. If you're a fan of this podcast, subscribe to our channel, leave a review, and share it with your friends. Join us next time.